You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with John Debs, who is using Django to power a video learning platform that focuses on helping you get stronger and more flexible. John, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Great to talk with you today. Yeah, happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your platform? Sure. So I've been using Django in production for I mean, basically since I got out of school. And so uh, a friend of mine who's also really interested in skill development, both of us sort of really love learning new things, especially physical skills. We sort of decided to put this platform together to sort of aggregate a lot of the knowledge in the communities that we're a part of. We reached out to a bunch of instructors, uh, a bunch of people that we know personally who happen to teach this stuff, stuff like handstands, flexibility, strength training, contortion, acrobatics. You know, a lot of them were interested in sharing that knowledge. So we put this platform together and, uh, you know, it's been a, a fun couple of months. Very cool. Yeah, I like the idea of just like watching a video and learning like random acrobatical stuff. Because I remember one time I was playing basketball with my nephew in uh, a driveway. And like before I knew it, I was backing up, backing up in like an unknown place sort of. And there was like a massive bush behind me. And then I ended up having to do like, not like a full blown like backflip, but like a backwards <laughs> handstand like around like the thorn bush. Like you never know when that stuff's going to pop up in real life. <laughs> right. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it was uh, get, sort of getting into this stuff. I got started with acro yoga and it's a thing that's kind of becoming much more popular. But when I was first introduced to it, I was sort of surprised by how accessible it is. You know, you can have somebody kind of floating up on your feet quite easily uh, and do some interesting stuff. And it was, I get this feeling a lot when I'm programming too, but just um, the feeling that you're sort of more capable than you think you are. Um, you know, when you like find a cool new library, just as an example, and it sort of opens up this world of possibility in terms of what you can create, it was sort of the same thing, but for movement. Um, and that was, you know, part of what kind of got me going and, and so interested. Yeah, that makes total sense. I could see that. So you mentioned you were working on this for a couple of months. Were you the sole developer on this project? No, I'm working with another developer. Um, he's actually pretty new to, I guess developing full-time. His background is in data science and sort of like engineering management. Um, but, you know, again, we like, we try to pick stuff up pretty quickly and, and he's certainly picked this up really quickly. Um, and so I, we've been live for a couple months, but we've actually been working on it since last fall. Um, so it's been maybe like seven or eight months at this point. Um, and yeah, it's, it is just the two of us. So since you've been working on this since the fall, has that been full-time work or is it kind of like part-time on the side? Uh, it was part-time at first, and now lately it's full-time, uh, or at least most of the time. Whenever I'm working on something, this this is the project. Um, you know, given quarantine and given uh, kind of a lot of the craziness that's happened and just the fact that I sort of wanted to take a little bit of break because I, I was I was just coming out of a four, four-and-a-half-year job, full-time job, it, it sort of took it easy at first. But at this point, it, it is basically a full-time job. Nice. So maybe just to get some context on like the size of this operation, do you have like any traffic stats that you might want to share? Like how many video views do you get per day or, you know, whatever per month, whatever makes sense. 
Yeah. So at this point, we've, uh, I'm not exactly sure on video views actually, but in terms of visitors, it fluctuates between like maybe 20 and 100 a day, depending on how much we're promoting or one of the instructors is promoting stuff. Very much still sort of trying to get that up off the ground and kind of get like lift off in a sense in terms of traffic. So it is, it is quite early as far as that goes for us. Right. Okay. So going back to your app, like what motivated you to use Django and Python? Was it just prior experience that you had or are there some components of the app that really make sense for using Django? For me, I mean, I have to admit a lot of it was my prior experience. Um, there's also the flexibility that comes with using a framework like Django um, as opposed to maybe some sort of SaaS service to handle parts of the app, you know, something like Heroku. Um, I mean, I guess I could use Django on Heroku, so that's, that's a poor example, but uh, it, it's the familiarity for me and sort of the idea that I, I have confidence that whatever we need to be able to do, we'll be able to do. Um, you know, there's either a library for it or somebody has sort of tread the ground before and has experience and, and we can sort of tap into the, the prior experience, um, both in myself and just in the community. We didn't have to worry about the solving any problems with this. You know, everything is sort of already, already solved for us. Right. That confidence level is huge, right? Cause sometimes you go off and build a new project, but maybe you decide to use something unfamiliar to you and like suddenly, yeah, that's like the opposite of confidence. Yeah, I, I do like to learn a bit with every new project, but I don't like to be sort of learning too much when there's a goal that we're trying to get to. Um, and certainly if it's something as fundamental as a web framework, um, you know, it can really slow you down if you have to learn as you go. And so in this case, certainly the priority was, was trying to ship something. And so, you know, I went with what I knew. Right. So you mentioned having you no know, different instructors on here. Is this set up then to be like a multi-tenancy app? Uh, one of the ideas, one of the main ideas of the app is that somebody who's training handstands, uh, there's a very high likelihood that they're going to be into in acrobatics as well. And it's not a given, but there's so much crossover between the two and, and so much of what, for example, an acrobat needs to do is also training handstands that it just sort of makes sense to us to put them all on the same platform. Okay. So we're not we're not multi-tenancy, but we are trying to be a place where people can sort of start on one skill or discipline and sort of seamlessly transition into other related skills and disciplines. Okay. So in a way, it's like more like, uh, I guess you can say like a marketplace, right? For discovering different types of like strength and flexibility videos. Right. Now, how does that work out when it comes to instructor payouts? Like you don't need to get into exact revenue numbers, but... From a technical point of view, if you have different instructors on, do you do any like, you know, crazy calculations to pay out them based on minutes watched or anything like that? Right now, because it's not subscription based yet, uh, we're planning on making it subscription based and we sort of came up with some preliminary calculations for what that would look like. Um, but right now, when you go to the site, you can actually only buy one video or series uh, at a time. You, you can't sort of... Um, subscribe and and have access to multiple instructor stuff yet so it's really easy to calculate payouts because we just sort of figure out the instructor's cut for a video or series sold and and send that to them uh through stripe okay so it's very similar to like how amazon would work right millions of different products different vendors you buy one product no other vendor gets a cut of that 
Right. As far as what we're planning when uh, when we open up subscriptions, uh, it, it is going to be some calculation on time watched per video. Okay. Now, going back to your Django app here, speaking of apps, do you use Django apps to break up your app or is it more of just like one gigantic monolith with no apps or is it broken up into microservices? So it's it's not quite a monolith, but it's pretty close. Uh, we have at this point, I think three or four apps, including a core one, which holds most of the sort of business logic. Um, we broke out videos and series into a videos app uh, because there's just so much logic around that as well. Uh, it made sense to split it up early on. And basically at this point, what we'll do is if we have some sort of small feature that we're adding on that's clearly separate, um, for example, we added a custom chat box to the website so that people could give feedback or ask questions. That kind of lives in its own app so that we kind of don't have to know it's there most of the time. And we can just focus on it exclusively if we if we do want to pay any attention to it. Okay. So that core application, is that something where you would have like a user model and your payments and stuff is in there as well? Yeah, exactly. Um, the users, payments, uh, a lot of the core sort of structure around disciplines. So we, we tie things together or we're beginning to tie things together through the discipline that they're a part of so that users can filter and navigate through those attributes. And that also, you know, that lives in the core app as well. Okay. And those disciplines, those are like conceptually like a category, right? Like a blog category. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned there's a lot of things going on in the videos app. Do you want to break down maybe some of the models you have there and like what's going on in that app? So the two main models in that app are videos, which represents a video, or actually it is just video. Um, and the other one is called series. And a series is exactly what it sounds like. It's, it's a series of videos that have sort of been stitched together and have a particular order. So an instructor might come onto the website and upload a video around, say, handstand kickups. And uh, they sort of will tailor it into a series on achieving a handstand by following it up with whatever the next step of that progression is. So a user who wants to learn handstands can start at the beginning and learn kickups. And once they're pretty confident with that, or if they're just curious, they can sort of move on to the next step and start training that as well. Um, so it, yeah, it's, it's our way of giving, uh, giving users a progression basically. Yeah, that makes sense. It sounds like, you know, it's kind of like a course maybe, but without the extra level of like having sections or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So when it comes to that videos app, uh, do you have things like transcripts in your videos as well or no? We don't have that yet right now. Um, there's a written description and there's uh, programming around the skill or drill, whatever the case may be, whatever the video is about, so that um, instructors can sort of give a prescription for how to use the video. They can say, you know, train this three times a week for 15 minutes uh, or train, you know, like certain parts of this for certain lengths of time or certain number of repetitions. Um, as far as transcriptions, we, we don't have that. And uh, sometimes instructors will sort of do voice voiceovers or they might do, they might, you know, go into iMovie and add, uh, their own captions to the video. Uh, but we, we don't have any text data of the information yet other than what they add to the description. Okay. Yeah. Cause I was clicking through your site just before this call and I noticed that you had a very, very custom looking video player, which I thought was like really cool. Like it didn't look like a Vimeo player or something like that. Do you want to maybe just walk us through 
what you did to create that and why you created that instead of using like Vimeo or Wistia? So we've, we were sort of thinking about what we can do to add value for a user. And I think one of the most useful things, one of the things that I want a lot if I'm watching some video on YouTube and trying to learn from it is uh, easy ways to, you know, uh, easy mechanism to change playback speed. That was like a really big one. Um, you know, with YouTube, you kind of have to click a few times. And if you want to change it, you have to click a few times again. And it's, it's a little annoying. And so what we've done is we added just uh, one click to slow down, one click to speed up. And if you want to speed it up more, you just click again. Um, and you can reset it back to the default one, one X playback speed just by clicking one more time. Um, and we added looping so you can highlight any critical section of a video. Um, you can sort of like drag these little handles to the beginning and a second one to the end, and it'll just sort of loop within that section. Uh, we added mirroring. Uh, so if say an instructor is doing something on one side and you want to like literally see it as, as if they're doing it on the other side, you can just flip the video around and, you know, we're hoping that that makes it easier to follow certain things. And so we just felt like adding this control to the video playback was one of the most useful things that we could do to help students learn from the videos. Um, so we decided early on that, you know, we sort of fought with it for a little bit and then eventually just kind of buckled and said, all right, we're, we're going to have to build this ourselves. Wow. Very cool. Cause thinking back, it's like, that loop feature seems to be like genius, right? For, for like any physical training where you just want to loop like 15 seconds. Like I couldn't imagine that feature not being there, you know? Right. Yeah. It's, it's really frustrating. I mean, one of the most frustrating things is, you know, on my phone when I'm sort of at the gym with my training partner and we're trying to watch this one section over and over and just kind of like trying to drag the playhead right to the beginning and needing to memorize that timestamp and, you know, having to repeat that like 10 or 15 times in an hour or, you know, even in 30 minutes is, you know, not what we want to spend our time and attention doing. So that, that was like one of the main features we felt needed to be part of uh, a video player on, on the platform. Yeah, absolutely. So which backend service do you use for that? Uh, like encoding the videos, do you use something like Mux or like AWS, like transcoding? So you know, it's funny you ask, we actually don't transcode videos at all right now. Um, what we do is have users upload directly to S3 and we serve them up directly. And we've actually had some feedback that some users can't play the videos, their, their connections aren't fast enough. So it's, it's one of the next things on our list actually this week is to get into video re-encoding at, you know, lower, lower frame rates, uh, I'm sorry, lower resolutions so that we can serve them up to users and just, you know, obviously use a lot less bandwidth on our end, which will lower our costs. Right. So right now an instructor, they could theoretically upload even like a 4k video and that'll just get served as is. Right. Yeah. I don't think we've got anyone with 4k. I mean, frankly, uh, just in talking to instructors, it's it, 4k files are so huge. It's, it's really inconvenient just to work with them in general. Um, so most of what we've gotten is 1080p or 720p. Yeah. And we also like ran into some interesting limitations uploading through mobile web, um, because it's a, it's a web only site. It's a web only platform right now, um, where iPhones at least will compress video before uploading. So even if the video is 1080p, I don't know of any workaround to get it, to get the phone, to actually send it to us at that resolution. 
Um, so we haven't really needed to, to worry about 4K yet, but we, you know, it's obviously still worthwhile to re-encode the image at lower resolution. I'm sorry, the, the video at lower resolutions, you know, just to make it a smaller package. Yeah, for sure. That also ties back, I guess, to your cost too, right? S3 wise. So bring back a 480p one on someone on a low connection would be a little bit cheaper than 1080p and have them buffering every like five seconds. Right, right. Which can be quite frustrating. Yeah. So, you know, these instructors are uploading probably pretty big videos, right? I mean, 20 megs, 100 megs, give or take. Uh, are you using built-in tools with Django to handle those uploads or do you use like a third-party library? Um, we're using Bodo to hand to generate pre-signed URLs. And right now our servers never actually see the video. We basically will point the user to a location in an S3 bucket, give them a pre-signed URL that they can then use to upload that video directly to S3. And we just sort of skip needing to deal with the videos at all right now. We very much take like an iterative approach to pretty much everything. It's like, what can we, what is the least amount of work we can get away with for this feature at this stage? And that's kind of what we do. Um, and then when we're forced to sort of revisit something, we'll go back and sort of beef it up a bit um, and sort of just continually do that so that we're not spending too much time in any one piece, basically. Right. So do you have like a second example where you kind of just did something fast to get it up and running, but then beefed it up later on? That's a good question. Um, we did originally do that with the video player. Uh, we, we, hadn't, we didn't have a custom one at first. Um, and so that was a small project, you know, we, we just had to like, kind of get over this hump where eventually we were like, you know, the, the native one just isn't that good. Um, and this adds so much value that like, it makes sense to revisit this and build our own. Um, and that's actually mostly done in react, uh, which was a fun little project. Cause I really like working in react, I'm trying to think of other places where we've done that, uh, in sort of an obvious way. What about maybe something like. The admin backend, are you using like Django's admin and replace some stuff or no? We are using Django's admin and what we're, what we're doing with that, our approach is, you know, plug all of our models into the admin. And then as we need to, we, we go back and add more information or sort of refine the information that's being displayed, add a little more like filtering or, or other functionality, functionality or interconnectedness with the site itself. Yeah. So I guess another place that. Something we actually actually just released, it's sort of related to the video re-encoding, is we, we weren't actually modifying images either. So instructors would up, upload avatars for themselves, you know, and at maybe like enormous resolution. The image might be like a few megabytes. Or they would upload thumbnails for their videos, and we were actually just serving those up as it is, you know, as, as they were. And that was also causing loading issues. Um, and so just this past week, you know, it actually didn't take very long. Um, I wrote a little job and sort of hooked it into certain parts of the app and, and upload flows where it downloads the image, uh, sort of creates a thumbnail at a much lower resolution and also saves that so that on pages where we're displaying a whole bunch of videos, you're not downloading, say, 30 megs of images. You know, now it might just be like a couple meg megabytes of images, which it dramatically has um, affected the load speed on, on, for example, the browse page. Oh yeah, for sure. If you're looking at a series with like 15 videos, like if they're like three megs a pop, that's a lot. Right. Right. Yes. That's, that's definitely another place where like at first it was just like, you know, how quickly can we do this? And as basically as soon as uh, we hear like one or two complaints, it's like, okay, let's, let's address this now. 
Yeah, that makes sense. So you mentioned a minute ago that, you know, you kind of just wrote this job to do that processing of the images. Is that a job executed through salary or some other type of background worker? So for asynchronous jobs, you know, a long time ago, I, I, I tried salary and it was just like so much to it that I, I was a little bit turned off by it and ended up using a library called RQ, Redis Q. Basically, ever since I started using it, you know, it's like actively maintained and there's a, another sort of Django plugin for it that sort of helps it integrate with Django. Um, I've, I've just used that and it's it's been great. Um, so the, the way that works is you basically write a function, put a job decorator around it, and then you can call it with a delay uh, at any point in your app, which just puts a job on a Redis queue and a separate worker process picks that up and executes it. And it's super simple uh, and it works really well for, for what we're doing. Very nice. So that separate background worker process, you're running that independently of your, your Django app server, like G-Unicorn or something like that, right? Right. Yeah. The, the really nice thing about it is that in dev, um, all of the calls to those jobs run synchronously. So we don't need to worry about having a separate process up while we're developing. We can just do, you know, our regular Django run server. Um, and then in production, we obviously just like automate a separate process. And it's uh, it's just an RQ worker process uh, that loads through Django. It's like uh, Python manage.py, like run worker or something like that, or run RQ worker. I forget exactly what it is, but yeah, it's it uh, just super easy. Okay. So let's swing back to that React video player because you said you had some fun developing that one. Uh, how did that go? Like what made you choose that for doing that type of thing? Um, well, so there's a pattern in the site where we, for the sort of the sake of speed and simplicity, we're really using Django templates as opposed to building a single page application and building out this like sort of full JSON API uh, of the entire DB. Um, and so on this particular page, we said, you know, like this is an important thing to improve. So we're going to bring in react and sort of like add some interactivity and, and improve it. And, uh, if I remember correctly, Ian, uh, this, that's my partner in this project. Um, he did the first implementation where he basically created, uh, like a, a first version of the controls and hooked into the video player API, the HTML5 video player API. And it worked really well. Uh, it just kind of looked like shit. And there were certain things that, you know, weren't, weren't ideal. And so I, and this is like sort of another pattern, uh, just in terms of our, our development habit, I sort of took a second pass and stylized it actually learning a lot about SVGs and, and sort of creating icons in the process, which was a fun little exercise as well. And just sort of like refine the behavior. Um, to the point where at this point we're, we're like really happy with it. There's, there's definitely a few things I would change. Um, and there's some potential performance issues in, uh, in the way sort of react passes data back and forth in the components we've created. Um, but for the most part, you know, very happy with it. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. I didn't expect you to, to be developing a completely, completely custom video player. Like I thought just by looking at it, maybe it was like some, you know, off the shelf video player that you kind of just modified through its own API. But that's very cool to see that you basically just created one from scratch. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like I said, it was a lot of fun and, uh, it's definitely, you know, one, of one of the selling points to us is we can go to an instructor or student and say, 
you know, we've got this platform. It's really easy to upload stuff and, you know, sort of get your content up there uh, as an instructor. Um, but the other major benefit is you can break stuff down. You can easily review parts of a video. Um, actually, an, another sort of somewhat related uh, feature that we implemented, I, I guess it's like a pretty basic thing to do uh, with a, a video site. But we, in the descriptions on videos, instructors can basically just type in a timestamp and we'll auto link those to the relevant section of the video. Um, so they can really easily set up a table of contents where they sort of like are watching it, writing down the timestamps as they go and uh, the title each section in their description uh, to let users easily click around there. And so to me, that's sort of like an extension of the video player as well. Yeah, definitely, definitely handy. If you're making longer videos that are like, you know, 30, 45 minutes long, having a timestamp every couple of minutes makes a big difference. And also probably easier on the instructor, right? Instead of having to cut up that one 45 minute video into like, you know, 10, five minute videos roughly. Totally, totally. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes that content really just sort of belongs together. It should live together. Um, and it, that way they also don't need to have five separate videos that a, a user would then need to purchase to get all of that content that's sort of conceptually related. Right. It's also kind of cool how you mentioned that a majority of the app is just, you know, simple Django templates. Like when most people think like video learning platform, you know, your first instinct might be like, wow, that, you know, that needs to be a single page app. But even me, I'm building a video platform as well. And I've talked to a couple other folks who have built their own. And we're all using server render templates with just a little bit of JavaScript here and there to make things a little bit nicer. But yeah, I guess when you break it down, right, it's just like, well, what are you really doing? It's like you're rendering some show notes and a specific video from a database and like a table of contents on the side or whatever. It's like not like a crazy interactive application. Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I do think it makes a lot of sense for this use case. The, the other, I, I would say, major place where we're using React is in the video upload flow. So it's sort of like video playback, video upload, the, the places where there is a lot of interactivity, as you said. Um, and then otherwise, it's just displaying content that users can click on. Um, you know, like if we're just displaying a bunch of videos to, to give a user an option to, to pick one of them, there's no reason that that needs to be dynamic in any way. Um, so we just don't bother and it saves us a bunch of time. Right. So you also mentioned before that you have like a chat component to this application. Is that like based on WebSockets, like some custom thing that you wrote, or is it just like a third party tool that you embedded? It's actually, it's much simpler than that. Uh, we were looking at options, things like Olark and that sort of thing for putting a little chat widget in the bottom right hand corner. Um, and I guess this is actually a good example of what we were talking about before, where we just did like a really quick first pass. So I basically added a button and had it click to expand into a little text area and the user could type something and hit enter. Uh, they could also add their email address. Um, and if they were logged in, it'll save information about who the user is. And, you know, obviously some, some time about when, when they sent us a message. We actually don't have the ability to respond. It's not a full chat widget. What we sort of said to ourselves is like, look, let's let's add this first version. If we find that people are really using it and engaging with it, we can add the ability for us to respond. And until then, we don't need to do that, right? So if no one's using it, what's the point in building this full back and forth app? So right now it's it's one way and you know, we we've gotten a handful of feedback on it, but not enough to justify sort of, you know, like adding WebSockets and, and doing a big back and forth um, where we're able to have a conversation with the, the users. 
Right. And you mentioned that, you know, potentially emails could be passed. And I guess for right now, this is something only the instructor would see, not every other enrolled student. Oh, it is. It is actually everybody. Um, so if a student has feedback, we definitely want to hear that and we want to want to encourage them to send it to us. So, you know, we have like sort of the standard email in the footer, but we wanted to give them an even lower friction way to give feedback. And occasionally they, they give it and, you know, we're always happy when they do. Oh, let me rephrase that one. Sorry about that. Like, like if a student goes in there and fills out that chat feature for now and, you know, the one-way street, does every student see that message or just the instructor? Oh, actually, it's just us, not even the instructor at this point. Yeah, it's it's just us that, that see that. Um, we are going to be opening up sort of more of a line of communication between students and instructors, but we haven't we haven't done that yet. Okay. So maybe now we can talk more a little bit about like the rest of your tech stack. So you mentioned that in development, you know, you kind of run your background jobs uh, in the foreground to avoid having to run like a second service. Is it safe to say that you're not using something like Docker then in development? Right. We're, we're not using Docker. Um, so when I got started developing, uh, you know, like years ago, a very important aspect of it was automation and uh, the only thing available at the time that I found that was sort of like good enough was Vagrant. Um, and so uh, what I've done is created this sort of like simple cookie cutter project. I call it basic project and it's on, you know, it's a public repo on GitHub. Um, but basically it's sort of the, the stack that I like to use. Um, and it starts with Vagrant and I use Ansible to install Python and Django, you know, the right version of Python and Django and Redis and Postgres and hook them all up. And basically when, you know, I've sort of updated it and it's, it's well-maintained ideally with like one command, you can sort of spin up this, this Django environment and, and have it all going. Um, so we're not using Docker right now. Um, definitely super interested in Docker and I've spent periods of time learning about it, but I haven't figured out sort of the complete workflow for myself and taken the time to replace the parts of the stack with it. Um, so yeah, Vagrant for now. Okay. So then you and your other developer buddy both use that same Vagrant setup in development. Right. Yeah. That's cool. I like that you're using Ansible to provision that Vagrant VM. Yeah. I mean, Ansible is another piece of tech that, you know, when I found it, I fell in love with it. I was using Chef for a long time, um, because I was sort of, you know, just by, I guess, coincidence or, or circumstance, I got, uh, push to the, not push, but I, I sort of worked on the ops side of the stack. Um, I sort of, I did consulting for a while and I worked with a couple other guys who mostly did like front and back end. And I would, I would work on that as well, but, um, I really actually enjoyed automating things, um, and sort of simplifying things and helping the other devs not worry about what their local dev environment looked like, you know, like sort of back in the day when you needed to set up your, your own system. Uh, to run these specific versions of all these services to get everything working. And it could kind of be a, a really big headache. Yeah. So, so uh, to, to Ansible, you know, I, I worked with chef for a while and then found Ansible really enjoyed how easy it was to get going. And as a nice side effect, you know, we use Ansible to provision the vagrant machine uh, when we spin up a server uh, and we use DigitalOcean uh, for their, their VPS, we can actually point the same Ansible scripts at the server. And for the most part, you know, it's probably like 80 or 90% shared. 
Uh, I can also provision our uh, staging and production servers with that same Ansible configuration code, which is really cool. Yeah, very cool indeed. And it's interesting your kind of story about how you got into Ansible. Like for me, it was the same exact way. Like, I, like my first taste of configuration management was Chef. Mm. And, you know, I learned using that tool. But after months of using it, to me, it felt like the most complicated thing in the world. And then I, I can't really blame Chef for that. It's just configuration management. Like, you know, seven, eight years ago was kind of complicated. And then I just remember using Ansible and it was like, holy crap, man. Like yeah. I got this thing up and running in like four days. But by that point, it's like you sort of know a little bit more about configuration management in general. But yeah, wonderful experience. Yeah, I think the key difference, uh, the, the thing, one of the things that made Ansible really successful is that you don't need to pre-install uh, any client software on the machine, it can sort of just, if it has SSH access, it takes care of the rest by itself, which is a, a really nice feature to have in configura configuration management tool. Yeah, plus you're just basically most most of the time just writing YAML and, you know, I haven't really even dived into writing custom Python modules because that use case never even had to come up. Right, yeah, exactly. So going back to what you said before about using DigitalOcean, was that your first pick? Like, did you have prior experience with that? Did you think about other providers? Um, I like DigitalOcean, um, and I've used Linode as well for really similar use cases. Um, so in this case, it was actually kind of a toss-up, which one we used. And uh, Ian and I actually had a prior project on DigitalOcean that we were working on together. Uh, that was sort of more of a fun side project. And so we just decided to you know, spin up another server and, and do this one on DigitalOcean as well. Okay. So do you have all of this then running on a single server or do you use DigitalOcean's like managed Postgres? We, we have it all running on a single server. We do have two servers with them. Um, one is the production server and another one is a staging environment. And, you know, obviously we can do a lot, like all of our testing in, in there uh, and make sure stuff is ready for production. Um, but as far as like the main production site, it is all running on one server right now. Um, and we're actually just now, as we get into video encoding, thinking about sort of breaking that out and getting another server that the worker would run on, because obviously like video encoding is going to be pretty heavy, pretty CPU intensive. And we don't want that running at the same time on the same server as the main app. Yeah, for sure. If you're uploading videos sort of frequently, that's going to just hurt your CPU a little bit. But uh, speaking of CPU, do you want to get into maybe like the hardware specs on that one production server you have? Yeah, uh, we use the most basic server available, uh, the $5 option from, from DigitalOcean. Um, and even with Redis running and Postgres running, we just don't need more than that. And we actually uh, were able to be quite inefficient with a lot of our queries still. Uh, we actually just yesterday enabled template caching so that uh, template loader caching that is. So um, the Django server will only reload the templates from disk, you know, every time we deploy the app. Um, we we yeah, haven't really needed to think much about performance yet, which which is really nice. Um, and at the same time, it gives us like a lot of space to sort of keep improving uh, before we before we need to upgrade. Um, or, I mean, I guess, you know, the trade-off might be that we, we upgrade instead of spending that time, uh, depending on the, the calculation at any given point. But, um, yeah, we're just, we're just using the regular $5 a month instances. Yeah, that's very cool. It's like, you know, you have your base OS, which we didn't go over yet. Is that 
like Ubuntu or Debian CentOS? We're using Ubuntu. And again, that's, you know, just something that I have the most experience with. Um, and so that's what we roll with. Right. But it, it's super cool that like, and for context, that $5 a month server, it has one gig of RAM, one CPU core. And it's like, you have the Ubuntu OS, you have Redis, you have your Postgres database and GUnicorn running with X number of workers. Like how many do you have roughly, if you know? Um, I think it's two or three, uh, but I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. Yeah. My, off the top of my head, it's probably something like two times the number of CPU cores plus one. Um, just because, you know, some blog post said that that was a decent sort of uh, default. Yeah, I think even in the docs, it was like CPU cores times two or something. But yeah, all of that just on one box at one gig of RAM, and it's it's actually up and running. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's really incredible. I mean, it, it's also, you know, kind of shows where like offloading stuff makes sense. Like that server is not sort of reading these enormous files off of disk and trying to serve those up as well, you know, which, which might affect uh, database performance if that's also hitting disk a lot. Um, there's, there's not really a ton in Redis. We have, you know, user sessions, we have our jobs and that's pretty much it. We're not really doing any caching yet because we don't need to. Um, and so, you know, as the site grows, obviously we'll sort of, I think the first step will be to separate those pieces, to move Postgres off to a separate server, to move Redis off to a separate server. Um, and then once each service is running on its own, um, VPS, I think that's when we would start sort of beefing up the individual servers and, uh, you know, spending more on each one. Right. So what about things now like static files and SSL certs? Do you have like Nginx in front of all of this or no? Yeah, we do have Nginx in front of it. Um, we're using Let's Encrypt for SSL, and it is such a godsend. It is, uh, I mean, I can't even express how much of like a headache saver that, that software is. I, I remember basically in the past what I used to do, I think there was a service called Start SSL, which actually after I used them, they were sort of like blacklisted by some browsers because they did some, some shady stuff. I don't even know what it was, but they at the time they offered a free SSL certificate this was years ago now. And so, you know, I went through the, the headache of sort of getting a certificate from them and sort of, you know, figuring out how to generate like the right files and put them in the right places and set up the right uh, Nginx config to get it all working, which I think took me like a few days at the time to like finally sort of nail it down. Um, but now with Let's Encrypt, you know, it's like a command and it's done and it's really wonderful. You know, then you like sort of make sure the job runs regularly through cron or something and that's it. And so that, you know, that's, that's been awesome. Yeah. So when it comes to setting up that, are you using the cert bot or do you have like some Ansible role configured that you created? Just using cert bot. Okay. Yeah. I remember that start SSL from a long time ago. I used them as well. And I had one bad experience with them where it's like, I wasn't very familiar with the service. You know, I, like you, I was just going through their web UI, setting it all up. And I just remember something happened. I forgot. Maybe I, I made them generate the private key, which which in turn was like a horrible move. And I wanted to revoke that certificate. But they're like, oh, well, you want to revoke a certificate? That's going to be $15. Like, it wasn't free to revoke. It was only free to create. Oof, that's how they get you. Yeah. But yeah, Let's Encrypt is uh, so much better. It's silly. So do you want to get into like maybe a little bit more about your Ansible setup? Like, what types of things are you configuring on your server? Yeah, um, this is going to be from memory. So let me see what I, what I can remember of it. 
the first few, I mean, I, I guess it starts with sort of base dependencies. Um, there's a Python role that sort of, you know, installs Python, makes sure that pip is installed and up to date, um, and probably sets up a few other things. There's sort of like the main, you know, any other main system dependencies, anything that I personally like to use if I'm SSH'd into a box. Uh, so it sets up, you know, a very basic Vim config um, and just a few common tools um, and some build tools if, if any uh, dependencies need to be compiled on the server. And then beyond that, uh, we install Node, uh, we install Postgres, Redis. Um, I have a role for Elasticsearch, although we haven't used it for this project yet. Um, but I, you know, it's sort of another thing that I like to keep in the toolbox. Um, sets up Nginx, and then I, after all that, I think the final step is to set up the uh, the site itself. You know, with uh, G Unicorn and and Django uh, hooked into Nginx. Okay, so let's rewind for a sec. You mentioned Elasticsearch. Is this one of those things where you know, if users want some type of full text search on the site, you might do it with Postgres initially and then like Elasticsearch later. Right. Yeah. Um, basically, right now, it's sort of a combination of like uh, doing some stuff in memory in Python and using Postgres to filter, uh, you know, so that we we're not like dealing with an enormous data set to begin with where we floated the entire DB into memory. Um, and, you know, our, our thinking at this point is, again, like, if this gets pretty slow at some point, or if there's some feature we need that's you know sort of prohibitively difficult to implement, we would switch to Elasticsearch at that point. Okay, yep, that makes sense. And going back to you know what you said before, you know these uh, series or videos, they're they're one-off purchases that people make. Uh, which payment gateway or gateways do you use? We're using Stripe, um, and so far the the dev experience has been really good. Um, even with Stripe, there are sort of like a lot of fees and maybe, you know, some unexpected ones in a sense, um, or, or maybe just more than I would like ultimately is, is really what it is. It's, it's not necessarily that they're unexpected, but, you know, at one point we were setting up our instructor's account as, uh, express, um, Stripe accounts so that we could, we could do payouts that way. And we realized that if, if we do express Stripe accounts, which are just, you know, easier and quicker for the instructors to set up that there's actually a fee associated with that. And so, you know, in an attempt to minimize fees, we, you know, found some workarounds, uh, which is basically just to use a standard account. So, so the uh, instructors will sort of set up a full Stripe account and that's how we pay them out. But yeah, overall, the experience has been really good. It's, it's actually sort of shocking. Um, on the checkout page, normally, you know, you're so used to filling out like your name and your address and all of this information along with your credit card. And actually, all that's required is, you know, credit card number and expiration date and the, uh, you know, three-digit or four-digit code, security code, and a zip code. Um, and so, you know, it's it's pretty uh, pretty seamless um, as far as that goes. Yeah, that was something that prior to using Stripe, I always figured, like, well, how the heck could you charge someone's card without knowing their name? Like, right. I never knew the name right. was optional. Yeah. Although I did realize, like, you know, I have my own course platform as well. Uh, without the name, you're probably going to get, like, very many, like, fraudulent transactions. So just having a name alone can cut that down by quite a lot. And even, like, zip code in addition to that will be, like, another massive drop-off if you can, you know, afford to put that on your form. But it's one of those weird things, right, where it's, like, if you're getting a digital product, you know, the potential buyer might be wondering, like, well, why do you need my zip code if, 
you know, if, if you're not going to be sending me anything. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and it, it certainly, it's nice to not be able to ask for much. I actually wonder sometimes whether that affects conversion or sort of like trust in the page, the fact that we're not asking for name and address. So, you know, once, once we have, you know, some more consistent traffic, I'd actually like to test that out. Yeah. My philosophy on that, and I don't know if it's right or wrong, is like, you know, if you ask for something like a zip code, if, you know, if you just have like a little label under that and you explain to people like why that's there, that, that puts the trust level way high. Like, I don't think that would drop conversions that much, but again, that's just like my personal guesswork. So when it comes to Stripe, did you have any customers ever email you asking you for like PayPal support or no? We haven't yet. No. Um, I think for the most part, people are pretty happy to pay, pay with credit card. We've considered doing payouts to instructors through PayPal uh, to hit some international instructors. Um, we're actually not sure if that's necessary yet. And so we're sort of, you know, playing it by ear as we're working with more instructors. So yeah, we haven't, we haven't needed to work with PayPal and, you know, it's, it's been a while since I've worked with PayPal's API. It's been years, but the last time I did, it was, it was not fun. Um, so, you know, when, when it came to this project, Stripe was very much the first choice and we got going pretty quickly with it. Uh, there's, there's still some stuff to figure out because, you know, they, they have different versions of their API and there's a lot of pieces to it. Um, you know, you sort of have to learn about like payment intents and setup intents and uh, it's not really obvious on the surface what those things are. Uh, so you have to sort of understand the language of their API uh, before you can really start implementing it correctly. Uh, but once you do get all that, it, it's quite easy and the documentation is really excellent. Yeah. And in addition to like payment intents, on top of that, there's like other decisions too. It's like, well, do you want to do the manual workflow or the automatic one? Like, yeah, I remember going over all that stuff back in September, 2019. It was, the docs were very so-so, but from what I read, they've gotten a lot better uh, since like January, 2020. Now you mentioned that you have your instructors setting up their own like complete full Stripe account. And does that mean then if like, like, let's say I were an instructor on your platform, I gave you my Stripe keys. If someone were to buy my course through your platform, would all of that then get sent through my Stripe keys where you as the platform wouldn't even get like a percent cut from that? Or do you kind of just like take that cut before the transaction ends up happening? So we don't, we don't actually deal with instructor Stripe keys at all. They, they set up an account and it's associated uh, with their user in our database. Um, we're using DJ Stripe, by the way, to sort of store all the Stripe information locally. And it has like a nice webhook setup where, you know, anytime anything is created on that Stripe account, it'll actually ping our app and make sure that the, the database is up to date with that information. But the, the instructors don't process the payments. We're still processing the payments. And then uh, once a month, determining each instructor's cut and sending it to their accounts. So I think that what Stripe sort of recommends is that you do the charges through each instructor's account. And, you know, we're just not doing that and it works pretty well. Yeah, whatever works. So did you write out some type of like, I don't know if you can label it as like an affiliate script because they're kind of not affiliates of you. They're like your customers. But, you know, did you write some type of automation script to figure out how much you need to send them every month? Yeah, exactly. We have a we have a payout script that basically uh, checks, you know, for all the uh, charges that have settled. Um, it sort of calculates what we owe the instructor for those sales, and uh, there, there's still a manual step where we verify it at this point, just because you know it's early on and we sort of want to like have eyes on it until we have you know like a pretty high level of confidence that 
we didn't sort of make some some small mistake. So we, we have like a quick manual review and then we just click OK and, and it sends off the uh, the appropriate amount to the instructor. Nice. Yeah, it sounds like it's automated enough for it to not be annoying, basically. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, as we go, we automate more and it gets even less annoying. Yeah, I'm in a very similar boat to you. Like anyone who's an affiliate of one of my courses, I just run a Python script locally on my dev box. It calculates everything based on like CSV files. And then I just go in and, you know, send people the money manually. And, you know, I don't have so many affiliates that it's a problem. It's like not even 10 minutes to do all of it. Yeah, I feel like, you know, I've heard this advice. Um, I feel like a really important aspect of sort of getting something up and running is, you know, not to try to automate every single piece of it right from the get go. And, you know, it sounds like you're, you're basically doing the same thing. Um, and it, I think that just saves a lot of time, even though it sort of feels like it's you're, you're bleeding time. And in a sense, you are. Um, it's like when that starts really taking up a significant portion, I think that's the point at which you automate it. And, you know, that's just like another thing taken off your plate. Yeah. Plus, it's like, I don't know, there's also it's not as easy as you would think, like it's not always just sending like money to them through PayPal. Sometimes it's like through PayPal, but then there's like that Zelle or Zelle program for U.S. people. And then there's like wire transfers for international people with like higher amounts. And then there's like transfer wise. And yeah, there's a whole list of like really crazy payment things that automating all of that would be very, very difficult. Now, speaking of like maybe some other SaaS tools that you might use, you know, you're using Stripe here for payments. Uh, what do you use for like transactional email? Yeah, so uh, we're using Mailgun for that. We set it up and got, you know, got it working and basically haven't really needed to think about it much. Uh, we are also using MailChimp uh, for sort of like the, the campaigns that we're starting to, to spin up. Um, and that's because they have, you know, sort of like a much better default style where we don't need to sort of handcraft the whole email. And we get some analytics on, you know, who's opened it and whether any links have been clicked. But for the sort of like notification emails uh, that are part of just like using the app, uh, we're just exclusively using Mailgun at this point. Okay. So does MailChimp still offer that? What is it like the first 2000 subs is free, I think? Yeah, they do. Um, we actually like very early on wanted to sort of divide our audience based on their interests. So we, we sort of collected some email addresses uh, on our landing page. And for each user who, who gave us an email address, we asked them what their interests were. And uh, we wanted to divide it up. I forget what the feature in uh, MailChimp is called, um, but they basically will let you sort of have like conditional logic where like, you know, if a user has a certain tag, then, you know, give them this content, or if they have these other tags, then you can give them this content. Um, but that requires a paid account and we're still trying to be cheap. Um, and so what we did was just kind of like manually create a few email campaigns ourselves and, and send those out. And that, that was pretty easy. And so far, yeah, we're, we're still, we're still in the free tier for MailChimp and, you know, getting all the information, uh, that they provide, which is great. Right. Yeah. If you ever want to go like the ultimate cheap route, there's always that one program called Sendy. I don't know if you've heard about that one. I haven't. So Sendy is, it's this old, I don't want to say old school, but it's like this monstrous PHP app that someone developed and they just sell it for like, I don't know, I think it's like $60 or like a one-time fee. You self-host it and then you integrate it with something like Amazon SES and all you're paying for then is the outgoing email, which is like insanely, insanely low with SES, right? It's like, I think it's like literally 10 cents for a thousand emails. 
But, uh, and you can do like, you know, automation and segmentation. If you're really on a budget um, and you have a decently sized list, then maybe it's an option. That's cool. Yeah. I appreciate the, the recommendation. I, I do like, uh, you know, even if there is probably like, we'll say a better tool, it's, it's nice to know about stuff uh, for when you sort of want to do it by hand or, or you're okay with hosting manually. So another, another instance where this has come up for me in the past was with uh, error aggregation. So I, I think for probably a lot of people who use Django, it's it's common to use Sentry to collect errors, uh, partly because Sentry itself is written in Django. And so it's pretty prominent in the community. And it's it's just a great service. And when I first heard about it and saw that it was open source and had, you know, like an even lower budget than than I do now, I just self-hosted it and, you know, dealt with everything, you know, involved with self-hosting and it ran fine for a while. Um, and at this point, you know, especially because they have a free tier, it's just like, well, you know, let's just let them do what they're good at and host this product. Um, you know, and obviously they keep it up to date given that, that they're, they're the ones who make it and run it. Um, and we can, you know, just hook into it and it's a much, much easier time than, than needing to set it up manually. But I, I always appreciate that the whole thing, like, you know, the whole product is basically available as open source and. If we needed to to run it ourselves for some reason at, at any point, we, we could do that. That's a pretty. That's actually pretty cool. I never knew that Sentry itself was a Django app, and I, I think that's almost like a little bit funny to me because I'm like I'm like 85% sure now the guy who created Flask, Armin, and I always forget his last name. I think he might be working at Sentry now. Yeah, I think he is. Um, yeah, and yeah, Flask is also like an amazing piece of work. Um, He's, he's put out a lot of good code. Yeah, he's a fantastic developer. So going back to like some other, you know, potential SaaS tools, like what do you do for like logging and metrics then? Is this like just SSHing into the server or do you use something else? Yeah, right now it's it's pretty much SSHing into the server. Um, and, you know, syslog aggregates everything coming out of GUnicorn. Yeah, the, right now the most important thing for us is just to make sure that we're notified about errors, which is why we have Sentry set up, and you know we have that for Django and for React for our front end. We actually ex use a bunch of jQuery too, um, and I hadn't really worked with jQuery in a while. I sort of like moved away from it, and you know I was like you know I'm I'm past it, but sort of coming back to it and saying like, well, you know, if we just need to do this one small thing on this otherwise, you know, fully static template, let's just use jQuery. It's actually been a pleasure to use. Um, and even uh, with React to, you know, do certain things like um, making Ajax requests, for example, just because I know the syntax for, for doing it with jQuery. It's, it's kind of been really nice. Yeah. So actually, we didn't really talk about that. Do you have all of this managed by Webpack then for the front end code? Yeah, it's pretty much managed by Webpack. Exactly. Uh, and we use Babel so that we can, you know, write modern JavaScript and have it be compatible. Um, but we've, we've actually, uh, we're pretty liberal about using new APIs and just sort of saying like, if somebody has a browser that's more than, you know, something like five years old, uh, they're just going to have a worse experience and some things may not work for them. Um, and we haven't received any complaints about that yet. So it's, it's been really nice to be able to lean on uh, a lot of the new JavaScript APIs as well. Right. So what's your minimum cutoff? Like right now, do you still support IE 11 or no? Um, we don't explicitly support IE 11. The site might work in it, but we don't, we don't test it. Um, 
Edge for sure. Anything we use, we, we want to make sure that it works in Edge. But we haven't been doing any Windows testing, actually. We'll, we'll just sort of like check API compatibility on caniuse.com um, and just kind of roll with it. And then we, we do our own testing in Firefox and Chrome and mobile Safari. Okay, so basically like any modern browser, basically. Exactly, yeah. So maybe now we can uh, switch gears back to like your deployment process. Uh, do you want to maybe just go over like what it's like to get code from your dev box until it's up and running in production? Sure. Yeah. Um, we have two branches in our repo and one is sort of associated with a staging server and the other one is associated with the production server. And so we have a master branch for production and a staging branch for staging. And we work on sort of feature branches as we're building stuff out. Um, we'll do a review together usually, um, like where we, we're like actually on a call talking through the code. And if something looks good, it gets merged into staging. Uh, we do manual staging deploys in that they're, they're manually triggered, but the whole process is automatic. Um, and the process is basically we use Fabric, which is a, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's a Python library. Um, sort of for, for interacting with servers. Um, and it sort of kicks off Ansible because Ansible itself has, you know, sort of like a lot of flags and commands uh, associated with, with running it against something. Um, so the, the command that I run is basically fab deploy and it kicks off Ansible and, you know, whatever other steps we need. It can run the, you know, Django management commands remotely really easily. Um, and that pulls down the latest... Uh, staging code and you know uh, runs through a few steps like collecting static files um, running migrations and then restarting the app and the worker and then we you know just sort of like moving towards towards production we'll, we'll run tests at that point against the staging server um, we started using cypress recently which is sort of like an alternative to selenium for doing integration testing on web and it's it's been an amazing like it's been a godsend really. Um, it's it's very easy to get Cypress to sort of step through our common workflows, and it does it pretty quickly. We wrote like a whole bunch of tests, and they still take like something like three minutes to run. Of that three minutes, like, can you give us a ballpark of like how many tests are being run, and like what are some of those workflows? Yeah, so we have some critical workflows, uh, like for example, uh, a user landing on a video. Uh, deciding they want to buy it and sort of clicking the purchase button uh, and then being redirected to sign up and from there being redirected to the purchase page where they can buy the video. Um, and to us, that's sort of like one of the critical workflows that needs to work if code is going to go out, right? If, if somebody can't buy the video, then what are we even doing? Um, and we, we test things like video playback. I think we have a total of something like 30 or 40 tests at this point that hit sort of the critical parts of the app. Um, we also have some Python tests using PyTest, uh, but that's, that's a smaller number and it's sort of like, lets us more, uh, like, you know, it's sort of closer to a unit test, not quite a unit test, but much closer to it where we can test like specific pieces of our backend. Um, you know, not really from a user's perspective, but obviously still important. Yeah. And so we, you know, we run all our tests once it's on staging, um, and from there, we have like a small release script where we basically say we want to cut a release. We manually give it a version number uh, because, you know, I think automating versioning is for me still not a solved problem. Um, so we sort of pass it in a version number and it does some like git 
branch magic where it you know merges staging into master and then it merges master back into staging so that they're on the same page. Uh, it tags the release, it pushes it all to GitHub. Um, and then from there we can uh, run a production deploy, uh, which you know deploys to production. Very cool. Yeah, it's nice to see that you do have that intermediate staging server where you do all of those tests. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much that we catch on there. It like you know to to us very much makes sense to have uh, a common place where sort of both of us can look and objectively see that like you know there there isn't some small dev detail that's sort of different between our systems and uh, you know the environment itself is obviously much closer to the production environment. So right, and that staging server then is it just up and running twenty four seven on some like you know private subdomain somewhere? Yeah, exactly. Very nice. Uh, have you ever looked into using something like uh, a CI service to maybe automate some of that? Or do you just prefer doing it sort of semi-manually because it works and like you just want eyes on it first? Yeah, uh, I would love to get this into a CI service. I've sort of started looking into Circle CI. Uh, at my last job, we used Jenkins pretty heavily. Um, I, I don't want to use Jenkins uh, just because it's a bit, it's kind of a maintenance burden and writing jobs for it is not as easy as I'd like it to be. Um, one, one thing that I found with testing is like, you know, if the tests aren't easy to write, we're not gonna write them. And so really the thing that Cypress changed for us is that it made the tests easy to write, so they get written. And it's sort of the same thing with CIs. Like if it's if it's difficult to automate things, we're, they're not gonna get automated. Um, so at this point, most of the automation goes into these sort of custom scripts that live in the repo. And I've started looking into moving to Circle CI to sort of like automatically trigger um, staging deploys because that's just you know an easy thing whenever somebody pushes to staging that can get deployed. Um, but I just basically haven't spent the time on it yet. Right, that makes sense. And yeah, Circle CI, I'm a big fan of them as well. Like they seem to be one of the better services, and they're not like a sponsor or anything like that. I just like them. But they're one of the better ones where it's just like if you don't want to get locked into using something like you know, GitLab CI service or GitHub Actions, then they're, you know, they're very neutral on whatever Git provider that you use. So you mentioned that, you know, maybe in the future you might automate that. Uh, do you actually have like all of your Ansible and, and deploy scripts, all of that just as part of your main code repo? Yeah, uh, pretty much everything lives in the code. Um, there's some secrets that we keep outside of it, um, but we actually do keep some secrets in it, which is, you know, not great. Um, uh, that was actually another thing that I sort of made an attempt to solve at my last job using HashiCorp's vault product, but the overhead for it is actually like much higher than I anticipated. Um, you you kind of run into this this issue with secrets management where you're sort of pushing it like one layer out, and it's still living somewhere that's like kind of accessible. Um, that said, you know I, I know that there's like a bunch of solutions to this, but I just I haven't adopted any. Um, but yeah. Right. So like using environment variables, not using that current day? No, no. Okay. And I guess uh, this probably goes without saying, but for that staging server, you're just using like the test Stripe keys, right? They're not making like live, like they're making real purchases through, through Stripe and not like your primary live account. Right. Yeah. They're, they're test keys. Um, and a, a, just a nice side effect of that, although this is a significant difference from production, is as we're going through the workflow that, say, an instructor would go through to set up a Stripe account, um, with the test keys, there's usually just like a button at the top of the page. You can click and say, you know, like, fill out this form for me. 
and Stripe will kind of go through and, and just let you skip all the details and the, the manual parts of that. So we can actually have our, our Cypress scripts run through that really easily without needing to generate a whole bunch of fake data. Yeah, that sounds very handy for sure. Now, maybe hopping into like disaster recovery and unexpected events, do you have anything going on like database backups and backing up user uploaded files? Um, with user uploaded files, we are trusting S3's redundancy. Uh, so we're, we're not backing those up anywhere, uh, especially because they're, they're just so big. You know, um, in, in some cases, the video uploads we're getting are like multiple gigs. Uh, and so, you know, it, it'd be quite a task to, to back those up someplace that's, that's not S3. Uh, doable, but, you know, not, not something that we feel is necessary at this point. Um, as far as the, the DB, basically, whenever we deploy, we will run a backup. Um, and it's, you know, automated, it basically just like does a dump of Postgres. And that's kind of our insurance for now. Um, so, you know, if something catastrophic happened where we lost the whole server, we, you know, we, we would be in trouble. Um, so it's actually a good reminder to like pull down those, those backups every once in a while locally. You know, it, it's funny, just again, like going back to my last job, one of, one of my major roles was to do data uh, disaster recovery, rather. Um, and so I was automating spinning up like this whole much more complex uh, setup in an entirely different AWS region at the time. But, you know, with a small product like this, it's, it's like, you know, what are the priorities? You know, what are, what are the chances that something like that's going to happen? It's like we, we take certain precautions to sort of make sure that nothing like really catastrophic occurs. And then beyond that, um, we just kind of, you know, hope we don't have to deal with any big headaches. Right. So when it comes to those PG dumps, do you just throw them also in S3 or somewhere else? Right now, they are actually just stored on the server, um, which is which is not great. Um, but that's that's what we're doing. So, you know, probably after this conversation, I'll go download the uh, the last few to, to my local machine and add a ticket to, to do something a little bit better than that. Right. Have you ever played around with using something like uh, digital oceans like block storage? Block store is that sort of like a S3 competitor, or is that sort of like a volume that you can connect to the uh, the virtual servers? I, I don't know exactly what that is. It's a second one where it's like basically like an external drive you can just connect to your droplet. Gotcha. Um, I haven't used that with DigitalOcean. Um, I've used uh, you know sort of separate volumes with S3 a bunch. Uh, I'm sorry with uh, with AWS when I was using EC2 for work. Um, but we haven't needed that. And there's so little that lives on our server. Um, you know, the DB is quite small. The backups are quite small. Uh, we don't store any of the images or videos locally. Um, and so we haven't needed to sort of expand disk space beyond what we're provided with the, uh, the standard uh, uh, droplet. Okay. Now speaking maybe a little bit more about like unexpected events and things like that and using DigitalOcean, do you use any of their alarming features? Like, hey, if the CPU is like maxed out for five minutes, email someone? No, we're, we don't have any alerts on that yet either. Certainly something we'll want to do uh, sort of as, you know, traffic ramps up or especially if we start noticing that there are some, uh, you know, maybe like times of day or, or certain pages that are sort of starting to threaten to be performance problems. Um, but right now we don't do any performance monitoring like that. 
Okay. Yeah, it's kind of cool. It's one of those things like you just go into the droplet settings, click a couple drop downs, and before you know it, you're monitoring like CPU memory and disk space. Hmm, that's cool. Yeah, I'll probably take a look at that too, actually. So what would you say are some of your best tips and lessons learned from building this app? That's a great question. Um, I guess one one tip, you know, it's sort of been the theme uh, is, you know, pick what you're familiar with. Uh, and I think, you know, always try to be learning a bit and like pushing on some boundaries so that you're, you're not totally stagnant. But it sort of makes a lot of sense to use tools that you know well um, and build the simplest thing you can to get going, uh, knowing that you can go back and improve things later. You know, and it, it just sort of doesn't make a lot of sense to, you know, build this whole big thing if nobody's on the site, you know. Um, and so it should sort of be a priority to get a shipping product and then get users in front of it so that you can start getting feedback and and uh, iterating on, on the product. Yeah, that is very, very good advice. So do you recall maybe just to wrap things up here, like possibly some mistakes you've made while developing this code base that you kind of fixed over time? One thing was was not testing early on, which was related to the fact, uh, which I mentioned, where you know we didn't have a way to write tests easily. That that sort of um, you know wasn't a big headache for us. But finding a like sort of investing the time to find a testing framework that we can you know we feel comfortable using and that we can use easily has saved us a ton of time with our releases. Um, because we didn't, you know, we didn't want to put out code that potentially broke a bunch of stuff. So we were, we were doing bigger releases like once every week or two, and then manually testing this sort of laundry list that would just grow every week of, of features we had implemented. And we would both sort of get on and be like, okay, you know, we've got to test this all in staging and we would do it. And we were glad we did it because we found a ton of stuff that, that would have slipped, you know, into production. But now that we have our automated tests, we can spend so much less time doing that and feel so much more confident in the code that we release. Um, you know, I, I know a lot of people preach this and it's absolutely true. Like tests just really, uh, they are one of the main things that you can use, one of the main tools available to developers to speed up the cycle of getting stuff out into production uh, with confidence, basically. Yeah, for sure. Like I, I don't, I would be very, very uncomfortable shipping anything to production without some form of tests. That's for sure. So John, Thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been awesome. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Yeah, uh, you can find the site. It's called Skillwell uh, at goskillwell.com. Um, especially, you know, if you're interested in any kind of movement, um, we're sort of bringing on new content all the time, bringing on new instructions all the time. And if you have feedback, we'd love to hear it. Uh, our Instagram handle is the same. It's at goskillwell. Um, yeah, and that's pretty much it. Cool. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running in Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.